This is a Diet of Brussels. It's nearly Christmas time and we've had a general election here in the UK. Uh, let's see, that's the third general election uh, that this uh, podcast has talked about since it was set up straight after the 2015 vote. Um, this, I think, is an important moment in the Brexit process because it exposes the balance of forces and elements that we've been uh, dealing with in recent months. And also it opens the stage to the next phase of Brexit. So let's think a little bit about the results, about the dynamics, what that shows us and where it might be pointing us. The result of a large conservative majority of 80 seats is at the top end of what pretty much anyone uh, had been talking about. Um, it reflected partly uh, the impact of uh, a division uh, amongst uh, Remain voters between uh, Liberal Democrats and Labour. It reflected uh, the more efficient uh, spread of the Conservative vote, so winning uh, a lot of seats by not very large majorities. Uh, it reflected as much on the strength of uh, leaders' uh, profiles as it did on policies, um, as much as people thought Boris Johnson was maybe a buffoon and a liar, uh, they seem to have found that more preferable to the uh, danger that Jeremy Corbyn would put uh, the UK in if he became Prime Minister. So, in many ways, these are kind of uh, generic cross-cutting things, but maybe what's interesting is what it says about Brexit. Um, at a popular level, it doesn't actually tell us very much about Brexit beyond the population remains very divided. We have still no clear uh, regrouping of public opinion to the leave side of the argument. Yes, uh, the Conservative Party did win the most seats and had the largest vote share, but in terms of... Uh, being a majority of the population, uh, we're still quite a long way from that. Even if you allow for uh, some Labour voters, many Labour voters, to be uh, in that boat too. So popular attitudes remain divided, as they have been ever since 2016. Uh, and there's no good reason to think that we're not really, that we haven't really moved from that 50-50 split. But in terms of the balance of political power, that has shifted decisively with uh, last week's uh, election result. What this means is that what we've seen over the past year with a strong parliament, a weak executive, uh, has now basically gone. Uh, we're awaiting today the uh, reintroduction of the Withdrawal Agreement Bill. Uh, and I think that's a nice microcosm of the way in which the uh, rebalancing has taken place. Firstly, uh, we see how that uh, has got to be um, 
done in uh, relatively quick speed. Uh, we've seen how um, the executive has removed many of the sweeteners about parliamentary oversight of the process um, and the uh, removal of uh, authorization to uh, ministers of the crown sitting in the joint committee to uh, accept an extension of the transition period uh, the removal of the dubs uh, provisions uh, on uh, orphan children all of these things reflect a, a government that now is back in the driving seat and it, it's always worth remembering that the british political system usually structures like this that the executive has a lot of power and Parliament has uh, relatively little. And the, the period since certainly 2017 has been very unusual in that the government has not had much uh, leverage because it hasn't really had a workable majority, which opened the way in the door for rebels. Um, we now have a much diminished Labour Party. We have a lot of uh, Labour Party infighting about what uh, went wrong, who made the mistakes, whose head should roll. We've got uh, a leadership that's hanging around rather than uh, staying out of things and letting the party try and rebuild, all of which is not conducive to uh, deep collaboration with other opposition parties. We also have uh, a much reduced Lib Dem party, which probably was the most vociferous on the Remain agenda, which now has to reposition itself too, since Remain seems to be is now uh, off the carts. Um, there doesn't seem to be any credible way that uh, uh, the UK won't leave on the 31st of uh, January next year. And we also have an SNP that is. Uh, increased but now swings its focus back to the question of Scottish independence uh, and I think that that's going to become uh, ever more important for them over Brexit. Brexit will become uh, ever more obviously a function of the independence debate for them uh, which makes uh, again their level of attention on this uh, more problematic. So in terms of the shift that's taking place, people over the past week have rightly been observing that this has been uh, an opportunity for Boris Johnson to be free of parliamentary constraints, and not just uh, uh, opposition parties uh, and soft uh, Brexit people in his own party, but also the hardline element. So this gives him a lot more uh, status and capital in negotiations but also it frees his hands uh, when it comes to making decisions. And that re revised withdrawal agreement bill that we've got coming in uh, gives him less constraint than the version that he had introduced uh, uh, earlier in the autumn. Now, having said all this, it's still not entirely clear that this makes life uh, any more uh, predictable for the rest of us. On the one hand, uh, we've got um, that uh, removal of constraints, but on the other, we've also evidently got uh, a um, uncertain leadership in number 10 at this stage. It's not clear 
what their ultimate objective is. On the one hand, they talk about um, having a free trade agreement, relatively uh, attenuated documents. They also talk about trying to avoid barriers to trade. Um, but at the same time, they also seem to want uh, uh, no uh, barriers between Northern Ireland and the rest of the UK. Uh, and importantly, they also want to do all of this by the end of uh, December next year. Now, all of those things seem to push in somewhat different directions, and particularly that last one of speed uh, over substance. And if speed really matters, then as we've discussed on this podcast before, uh, and others have discussed too, then largely the UK has to become very acquiescent uh, and uh, take largely what the EU offers it. Now, that's not intrinsically problematic if uh, Parliament is no longer likely to kick up a fuss. What's un where the problem lies is not, no is not Parliament, but number 10. What happens if number 10 kicks up a fuss? And the question of what the alternative might be uh, for number 10, if it gets a deal that it's not uh, happy with, uh, remains somewhat uh, opaque, should we say. And this is what brings us back to the question of uh, the trapdoor that uh, in entering into the transition period, we're no longer under Article 50, we're instead under a transition deal, which has an extension mechanism, um, which the government says it doesn't want to use uh, and won't use. And uh, whether that uh, helps concentrate minds, as I think part of the thinking is in number 10, or <coughs> whether it just leaves everyone with a major problem, uh, and not a major problem at the end of next year, but in the middle of next year, because that's the point at which somebody has to ask for an extension in order for it to kick in from uh, the beginning of 2021. Now, um, there's been some discussion this week about whether this uh, self-limitation in the Withdrawal Agreement Bill is compatible with the Withdrawal Agreement. The argument is, is that the withdrawal agreement contains provision for the Joint Committee to agree an extension. Uh, if the implementing legislation in the UK says we will not use that, and Ministers of the Crown sitting in the Joint Committee will not uh, agree to that, then there has been an argument made that this is not a good faith uh, implementation of the deal and that therefore uh, it's not uh, acceptable. Now, the EU hasn't pronounced on this, um, and it's not entirely clear that it could within uh, the timescale available. I guess the Court of Justice could uh, weigh in uh, if it wants to very quickly. On the one hand, um, yes, you could make that argument. On the other hand, um, there is a degree of wiggle room. The provisions of the withdrawal agreement say only that uh, there should be representatives of uh, the parties in the joint committee. It doesn't say what office they should hold, how they should be appointed. So if there are UK government uh, representatives who sit on the joint committee who are not ministers of the Crown, which is the wording used in the withdrawal agreement bill, then they are under no such uh, 
legal constraint uh, in their decisions. Now, that might seem like semantics, but that might well be uh, where we are. And certainly there has been no discussion at this stage about who would sit on that joint committee at this stage, although logically you would expect it to be cabinet-level ministers. So there's uh, a gap in the uh, legislative framework, which might be then cause for a degree of uh, legal ambiguity that might get this through. Certainly if there was a ruling from a body that this was a, uh, an impairment of a good faith implementation, then we really would have a whole lot of trouble. And the question is who would do what uh, about it? Would the government uh, here change its legislation? Would the withdrawal agreement bill uh, be uh, amended too? Uh, what about timelines in all of this? Um, it's the kind of uh, issue that I think uh, would raise many, many more queries uh, than it would solve. But, tellingly, I think what you're likely to see is more recourse in the coming years to legal remedies. Uh, the falling away of Parliament as a viable uh, uh, counterweights to uh, the government really means that uh, those who have uh, significant problems are likely to have to fall back on uh, legal avenues which are slower and more problematic particularly in an environment in the UK where there is now discussion about the political appointments of judges which would be a very major shift and would raise a whole lot of questions uh, and if you want to know what those questions are, just have a look at the debates in uh, Poland and Hungary right now where they're having exactly the same discussions. And think about your lay views of Poland and Hungary and how they look uh, as uh, sites of democracy and the rule of law. So I think just to, to wrap this up, because you want to go and have Christmas and I certainly want to go and have Christmas, uh, and not think about this kind of stuff for a fortnight. We're moving into the next stage of Brexit. This is going to be the end of that first phase of leaving. Uh, we're going to have uh, probably a very quiet Christmas uh, because uh, these things are so pressing and urgent that we need to have two weeks off uh, to get our shit back together. And then January is going to be frenetic. Uh, we're going to see Parliament uh, rush through the uh, approval of the Withdrawal Agreement Bill. Uh, what will be very interesting is what happens in the House of Lords, where the government doesn't have a majority and where there are lots of concerns about the constitutional implications of that uh, legislation. Um, there is the uh, Salisbury uh, Doctrine, which requires the House of Lords to pass uh, legislation uh, that's uh, mentioned in the governing party's manifesto, but it doesn't say anything about uh, timelines within parliamentary sessions. So the Lords would be well within its rights to sit on this uh, well past January. Whether it actually wanted to, I think, is uh, somewhat moot, uh, but uh, hey, we could have a discussion about uh, the status of the House of Lords and its composition. So we've got the Lords to get through. We've also got the European uh, Union arm of ratification, 
which is much simpler. The European Parliament saying it's going to do that uh, the last week of January next year, which all takes us to the 31st of January when the UK is almost certain to leave. And at that point, then we're going to get into the next bigger, more complicated stage uh, of negotiating a future relationship. That's a really big and chunky question, uh, made bigger and chunkier by the fact that neither side has yet released detailed uh, proposals or mandates about what it is that they want to achieve. So maybe over Christmas, somebody has a good hard think about this uh, in uh, number 10 or in the Chancelleries of Europe uh, or the Bellemont. Um, and uh, put some stuff down. But until they do, I think probably the best thing we can do is say uh, a very happy Christmas to you and a uh, peaceful, he said laughingly, New Year. And we will come back to this in 2020, uh, just the four and a half short years since that referendum. It's been a real pleasure again, and I look forward to seeing you on the other side of the break.